Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. If you've been following along with us for a while, you know that we have just transitioned from point number two to point number three in our worksheet entitled Important Prophecy Terms. And this is a worksheet that you can download from this radio station, whcbradio.org. And I would uh, highly suggest, strongly suggest that you do it because as you see when you uh, see the worksheet on the website, and of course when you download it, you'll see that we use a lot of Scripture, a lot of Scripture to make our points here as we are looking at contrasting seven sets of prophetic terms that I believe are very important to have a grasp of, an understanding of, before we start looking at the 30 prophetic events that the Bible, I believe, for my study, will take place between now and eternity, which we find at the very end of the book of Revelation. So 30 prophetic events, and as I was preparing my initial notes for that, I realized that if we didn't have a a good foundational understanding of these particular terms, and this is not an exhaustive list, it's just the seven that I thought were important um, to understand enough to go back and take an, a, a preliminary look at before we got into that general overview of the prophetic uh, sequence of events between now and eternity. And we've done that by looking, first of all, at the Son of God and contrasting that with the Son of Man, and I hope that was a blessing to you as we went through all of those scriptures to understand that, yes, they're both Jesus Christ, but they are totally different manifestations of Christ, depending on who is being addressed. The Son of God to the believing righteous, the Son of Man to the unbelieving unrighteous, the Son of God to bring blessings and rewards, the Son of Man to bring judgment and punishment. Then we went to the day of Christ and compared and contrasted contrasted it with the day of the Lord, and there really was no comparison. It was all contrasting, and we saw that the day of Christ, uh, principally according to the writings of Paul in the New Testament, is a description of a very um, a day that we are to eagerly look forward to, a day that we are to talk to our fellow believers about, to encourage one another, that is a day when we will be trans- transformed, if you will, Uh, from our earthly bodies to our glorified heavenly bodies. And it's a day that will happen in the blink of an eye uh, with no signs. So there's no way we can know exactly when it's coming, although the Bible does say that we can know the the season. And I believe we are in the season in in which the Lord is going to come back for his church. And we know that he's coming back for his church uh, first, because uh, it says over and over again uh, in the New Testament that the church, remember the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. There was no knowledge of it, no understanding of it. But in the New Testament, uh, in the beginning, it was a mystery, and then Paul, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, revealed it, 
And of course, then all the apostles and writers uh, of the scriptures started to talk about that particular event, and they called it the day of Christ. And it's a day that we will um, see the Lord face to face. It'll be the the fulfillment, the culmination of our um, um, salvation process. Remember, uh, when you accepted Christ, you were justified, you were saved, but it was a guarantee of a future fulfillment. And then as you went through your life as a Christian after your your point of salvation, you uh, should be growing uh, in uh, growing to become more and more Christ-like by being about the Lord's work, by diligently studying his word, because those things please God. And then when we see him face-to-face, when we see Jesus face-to-face, that is when our salvation will be completed, because right now our salvation is a spiritual salvation with a guarantee of a bodily salvation. That bodily salvation takes place at the rapture of the church when we stand before the Lord. We will stand before him not only spiritually saved, but physically saved in our physical bodies, as it says in First um, Thessalonians chapter 5, towards the end of that chapter, it talks about we will be saved body, soul, and spirit. So it's a wonderful time to look forward to. And then we contrasted that with the day of the Lord, where that is uh, at least seven years, because we don't know uh, the relationship between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, with the exception that we know it's at least seven years. But it could be several years, and I tend to think that it's at least three and a half years before the uh, tribulation starts, and I'll explain that in some detail when we get to um, another point, uh, a set of terms in our um, list of seven prophetic terms um, that are important to understand, and that's the contrast between the Gog and Magog battles. So... Um, I won't get into that now, but we will in detail uh, later on in this particular series on important prophetic terms. But the uh, the day of the Lord starts at the midpoint, and the reason it starts at the midpoint of tribulation is that's when Israel experiences the wrath of God, the wrath of Satan and the Antichrist. Remember the first half, they were protected by a treaty, a false treaty, Isaiah 28 refers to it as a a treaty with hell, (laughs) but unfortunately the Jews who who entered that treaty didn't see it that way. Uh, The remnant would have understood it, but these are unbelieving Jews that are running Israel at the time, and they enter into this treaty, and they're protected in the first half. In the second half, uh, for all, for for just to use a, a term we hear a lot, all hell breaks loose on the earth, and on Israel particularly. The whole seven years is a period of wrath, but the second half, the second three and a half years, is particularly a wrath focused on Israel. And it's called the day of the Lord. And then the, the next big point in that period of time is the judgment, when Christ comes back to the earth. Remember, in the rapture of the day of Christ, he doesn't come to the earth. So all of these passages like the parable of the ten virgins and so forth where the bridegroom comes to the earth there are those that say that's a description of the rapture well it can't be because the bridegroom comes to the earth and uh, we know that he only comes in the air and that we go up to meet him 
Uh, that's First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, verses thirteen to eighteen. If you want to read those, and then um, he he judges the earth, and then he sets up his kingdom. So that's the day of the Lord contrasted with the day of Christ. And then we um, move into our third set of terms, and this is the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace. And if you have um, studied your Bible, well, if you've read it a number of times, you know, the one year through the Bible series and so forth, reading the Bible is good. It's, it's definitely a whole lot better than not reading the Bible. But I would also suggest that studying the Bible is really what God wants us to do. As a matter of fact, when you go to 2 Timothy 2.15, we're admonished to study to show yourself approved. It doesn't say sit in the pew and listen to the pastor. That's good. That's okay. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say go to Sunday school and so forth. That's good. But it says for you personally to get into it, do the work, and study to show yourself approved. Not approved to man, approved by God. And that's 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 so important. And we know, and we've covered this any number of times, that the scriptures particularly tell us the two things that please God are studying his word, growing in our knowledge of who he is, and then from that study of his word, having the desire to go out and do the work of God. And that's basically telling a dying world, a spiritually dying world, about the Savior, Jesus Christ, that they might come to a saving knowledge of who he is so that they can avoid everything that's involved in the day of the Lord, that they can enjoy the day of Christ when the Lord comes for his church. So the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace are, as you read through your Bible, you may just read right over these and not think anything of them other than, well, it's the gospel. And of course, we know in the Greek, gospel means good news, good news. And you think about the gospel of the kingdom, well, we need to have an understanding, and that's what we're going to do here as we look at the gospel of the kingdom and compare it with the gospel of grace, is what kingdom are we talking about? And most of the churches today, unfortunately, are teaching that this kingdom is our kingdom, that the gospel of the kingdom is talking about, that the church has replaced Israel, and that when you see the word Israel, in most cases, it's actually a code word for church. And I am here today to tell you that I cannot find that anywhere in, in, in God's word. Uh, nothing that supports a replacement of Israel with the church. They are two separate entities, both ending in a belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but they are two separate entities. And we try to make that point uh, whenever we can in this ministry, because that's really the only way to understand the Bible. If you take it literally, as a matter of fact, I've actually read a strong replacement theologian, somebody who strongly believes that the church has replaced Israel, actually make the statement that if you if you read the Bible literally, you would come out understanding that Israel and the church are separate. So he basically outed himself, but then he turns right around and says, I don't believe that, but that's what the literal reading of the Bible would lead you to believe. 
And of course, the the general understanding of replacement theologians is that you cannot understand, you cannot study the Bible literally. Uh, that is for uneducated people, that you have to have a heightened spiritual awareness that when you read something in the Scripture, there is a deeper meaning that only a few people understand, and that's the true meaning of that verse that God wants you to know. Well, that, as far as I'm concerned, is Gnosticism. That is a sin, and you are misinterpreting God's Word. So, okay, we'll leave, we'll leave that there and get back to what's important, and that is the the literal Word of God, to try and understand it through the leading of the Holy Spirit, what he wants us to know. So when Jesus came, he came as one who was prophesied by the Old Testament as the coming King, the coming King, the coming Messiah, the coming prophet. And I want to show you all of those, the King, the prophet, the Messiah, because there are those that can, they say he's really one more than the other, that he's more of a prophet. And I'll actually show you passages where it'll, in a group where Jesus is speaking, some saw him as a prophet, others saw him as a Messiah. But they did not want to see him as a king. And that's where relative to Israel, and I have to make that point so clear, relative to Israel, if you'll simply allow yourself to understand, and I pray that it's through the leading of the Holy Spirit, that when you read these passages, you're asking yourself, who, what, where, when, why, and how? And if you do that, and you find out who is speaking to whom about what, at what time, and in what circumstances, and when I say what time, I'm not talking about two o'clock in the afternoon, or I'm not talking about Uh, March of the year, I'm talking about where is Jesus in his ministry when he is sharing this information? Because remember, it was way into Jesus' ministry. After Israel had turned their back on him, did he start talking? Did he ever mention the church? Did he ever mention having to go to Jerusalem to be falsely accused of being the king of Israel? and then being crucified for blasphemy, buried and resurrected. So he didn't share that until a specific point in his ministry. And we make that point very, we'll make that transition point very clear because that is the transition point between the gospel of the kingdom, I am your king prophesied to you from long ago, I am here to set up the kingdom on the earth as prophesied. Once they turned his back, their back on him, he, he withdrew. He didn't do away with. He withdrew temporarily that offer of the kingdom, and he turned his attention to what would become the church, which included Jew and Gentile, and it's called the gospel of grace, the gospel of grace, the age of grace. And it's interesting, when you, you hear the age of grace, they say, well, Paul Uh, coined that term in his writings in the New Testament when he revealed the mystery of the church as being Jew and Gentile together in the Spirit uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ. It turns out that uh, you're familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered uh, initially back in 1948 there at the Jordan River Valley that were written by the Essenes, uh, 
approximately a hundred years before Christ was born. And they found many, many uh, scrolls of the Old Testament and so forth. And, and some of those scrolls, because they are Old Testament, uh, clearly prophesy a future time called the Age of Grace, the Age of Grace. So it's actually a term that Paul uh, carried on but didn't make up. And I, I find that an interesting uh, piece of information that I just recently learned, that uh, that is something that the Old Testament writers knew would come about sometime in the future, this Age of Grace. So the gospel of the kingdom was something that was understood by the Israelites. It was prophesied by the prophets and by the patriarchs and so forth as God uh, moved through the Holy Spirit to the writers of the Old Testament. We know that they were looking for a king to come, also called a prophet, also called a Messiah, that he would save Israel from its enemies uh, at some point, but only after a period of tribulation, a period that was called by Jeremiah, time of Jacob's trouble. This is the day of the Lord that we just finished talking about, this period of time when this, this king, this Messiah, would come back and judge the earth. And, of course, at that time of, of Christ, they were thinking the Roman Empire. Before the Roman Empire, it was the Greeks and so forth. So uh, the Romans were the ones that were the focus here, and they were hoping that this man, this one called Jesus, born of Joseph, remember they didn't recognize him as the Son of God, born of Joseph and Mary, that somehow he was going to be this conquering king that would conquer the Romans and would, as prophesied in the Old Testament, set Israel back up to the way it was at the time of King David and King Solomon. And that's when Israel was at the peak of its empire, both in power and influence as well as geography. At that point in time, the, the, the land of Israel went all the way up to the Euphrates River, in the north and all the way down to the um, the um, river of Egypt. That's not the Nile, but the river of Egypt down in the Sinai. It was a, a, a fairly big piece of land, not, not a whole lot, maybe a half again as big as it is today. But nevertheless, it was the peak of the empire, and they were expecting Jesus to do that for them. That's who this promised king was supposed to be according to the Old Testament. So when he came, he was preaching the gospel of this prophetic promised kingdom, and he was to be the king if they would accept him. So we're going to get into the scriptures in our next program and um, really dig into this, because if you can understand the difference between the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace, you've got a good piece of information to build on as we as we start looking at the prophetic scriptures, because the offer of the gospel of the kingdom is going to be offered once again, once the church is gone. So let's now transition over to our Q&A, as we always do. And we have been dealing with a question, does the fact that Israel is the wife of God have any impact on end-time prophecy? And we have uh, spent quite a bit of time making the point from Scripture that indeed Israel is the wife of God. God refers to him as the husband of Israel. And remember, going forward, we are the bride as the church. We are the bride of Christ. He is our bridegroom. And when we are raptured, 
at the, um, I believe it's the next prophetic event. It's signless. We don't know when it's going to happen. But when we are raptured, we will then be the wife of Christ. He will be our head. He will be our husband. We will be his wife, and we will come back to the earth when he comes back at his second coming with him in our glorified bodies. We will live forever in a perfect state, but we will rule and reign on the earth with him during that millennial kingdom. So we we basically address the church as a period of time between Pentecost and the rapture. This is what's called the age of grace, the age of the church. But once the rapture happens, the church is going to be taken off the earth to heaven, and God is going to turn his full attention back to his wife, Israel, in what is called the seven-year tribulation, the second coming of Christ, and then the setting up of his millennial kingdom, Christ's millennial kingdom here on the earth, with Israel as the preeminent nation, as prophesied and promised and covenanted in the Old Testament. All of this will take place. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ will rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords from Jerusalem, from the fourth temple. Not the third temple that's going to be built during the tribulation according to Daniel and according to Revelation. That third temple will be built in unbelief, and it will be destroyed. And then the fourth millennial temple, much bigger than any temple that was ever there in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, will be the home, if you will, of Jesus on the earth for a thousand years, and we'll be with him. So we went through that as we reviewed Acts chapter 15, and of course Acts chapter 15 verses 13 to 18 is really a review of the passage in Amos chapter 9, verses 8 to 12, and we showed where the church would be raptured out, and then Christ would come back and set up his kingdom, Uh, all from that looking at Acts 15 and comparing it with Amos chapter 9. And then we just made the point that we need to understand, contrary to what a lot of churches unfortunately are teaching today, is that the church, while very important, is only a portion of God's plan. His primary plan revolves around and deals with this tiny group of people called Israel, called his wife. He went as far as to say in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, you who curse Israel, in other words, you who curse my wife, I will curse you. And if you bless my wife, Israel, I will bless you. I mean, you can't get any more specific of a a statement from a loving husband about his wife, and he's directing that to all the Gentiles of the world throughout history. You bless my wife, I'll bless you. And you curse my wife, I'll curse you. So before the church, before Pentecost, it was all about Israel. After the rapture, when the church is taken off the earth back to heaven, it's all about Israel. So if we can understand that in the flow of God's word, it just makes, it flows, and you don't have to do any mental gymnastics to try and, and match one passage with another because they just don't seem to fit. Well, they don't seem to fit because you want to inject the church into everything, and the church doesn't belong in every passage in the Bible. Remember, the Bible, all 66, was written for you but it's not all about you. 
and I'm referring to the church. So with that, we got into Deuteronomy. We wanted to spend some time looking at some key Old Testament passages to make the point that Israel is the main focus of God throughout the Bible, and that even relative to the church, Israel is still in focus. As a matter of fact, you know, we're not going to go there, but just off the top of my head, uh, if you were to go to the book of Romans and go to chapter 11 and look at verse 11, it basically is saying the purpose of the church was to make Israel, to make God's wife jealous because God's wife has wandered away from the faith, if you will, and have gone after idols. And that's what the Old Testament is a lot about, that uh, the, the purpose of the church and how the church relates to God through Jesus Christ, uh, which, of course, Jesus is going to be preeminently important to Israel as well. They cannot be saved at the end of the tribulation without faith in Jesus Christ. That the purpose of the church is to make Israel jealous. I I just find that as one of the most poignant passages there, that if you're a replacement theologian, how do you explain that passage? All right, we went to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and the reason we went to Deuteronomy chapter 7 last time was to make the point of how God views Israel. God views Israel as preeminent among the nations. And he says, you were the least among the nations, but I chose to love you, Israel, above all the other nations. And he says, um, basically paraphrasing, para- <laughs> paraphrasing what we read last time in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he finished in verse 11 by saying, therefore you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I command you today to do them. And because he says, if you will do that, God is a faithful God. Going to verse 9 of Deuteronomy 7, he's a faithful God. He keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation. You know, if a generation is 30 years, let's say, that's 30,000 years. What that's basically saying is forever, forever. He keeps his covenant and his loving kindness with those who love him and keep his commandments. But then you see in the next verse, if you don't love him, if you de- if you deny him, he says God will repay those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face, to his face. So God is a loving God, but God is a just God, and he will keep his covenants with those who follow his commandments, and he'll do that forever. What a wonderful God we serve. All right, let's go. Let's stay in Deuteronomy. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 4 for just another little quick overview of uh, God's relationship with his wife. This is Deuteronomy chapter 4, and let's look at verse uh, 5. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments. This is Moses talking to Israel. Just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it, so keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. That's referring to Israel. 
For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your sons and your daughters. So the point here is that God is telling them, I am a loving, covenant-keeping God. I'm focusing my love on you if you will love me. All right, we'll continue this in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.